This is the EWN Podcast Network. Welcome to Late Boomers, our podcast guide to creating your third act with style, power, and impact. Hi, I'm Kathy Worthington. And I'm Mary Elkins. Join us as we bring you conversations with successful entrepreneurs, entertainers, and people with vision who are making a difference in the world. Everyone has a story, and we'll take you along for the ride on each interview, recounting the journey our guests have taken to get where they are, inspiring you to create your own path to success. Let's get started. Hello, I'm Kathy Worthington. Welcome to our latest episode of Late Boomers. Today we have as our special guest, Liz Alterman, the author of the domestic suspense novel, The Perfect Neighborhood, the young adult novel, He'll Be Waiting, and the memoir, Sad Sacked. Her essays and humor pieces have appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, McSweeney's Internet Tendency, and other publications. And I'm Mary Elkins. Liz lives in New Jersey with her husband and three sons. When she isn't writing, Liz spends most days reading, microwaving the same cup of coffee, and looking up synonyms. As you can guess, she's also a humorist. Welcome, Liz. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Kathy and Mary. It's it's a pleasure to be here. Great to have you. Thank you. How did you start out becoming a writer? Were there mentors, people who encouraged you, or do you think it was the type of education you received? Oh, that's a great question. Well, I always say one of my earliest memories is of my mom reading to me on the couch. And I think she really fostered a love of reading at an early age. And even as a child, the things I would ask for for Christmas would be um, to add to my Nancy Drew collection. (laughs) I loved Nancy Drew. I did too. I couldn't get enough. And I I love the covers of the sp- the yellow spines. I would re- get them in order. If one volume was missing, I had to fill that right in. And mm-hmm. so I think that sort of was how I got my start. And I, I just loved going to a library and escaping into a book. You know, I felt like you could just travel without leaving your house. And, and I guess I wanted to be able to try to provide that for someone else. And that's really how, how I got started. And then in college, I majored in English. Uh, and I just, I loved reading no matter what time period. Of course, some periods I liked more than others. Some Which ones? More challenging. Um, you know, I think Shakespeare, even now that I'm, I live not far from a Shakespeare theater and my neighbors will say, Hey, do you want to go to that? And I think, no, I think I was, I was more in the, um, the Hemingway and Fitzgerald uh, category that I enjoyed. I, I found it a little more accessible. Oh, I, I think we're going to be friends. Oh, good. Right. <laughs> and did you have some mentors in school? That helped you. you? Know, I had I had a creative writing professor whom I really loved. I felt like he did such a nice job. His name is Carl Schaefer. He kept us sort of in a circle and really tried to encourage writers, I would say, always finding the positive and encouraging. You know, I think a lot of times you don't know when you enter a class, are people gonna kind of bogged down on, let's say, grammar or, oh, you missed a comma here. But he really focused a lot on character development, on plot, on word choice. And that was just really wonderful to have that encouragement. So 
I took two classes with him and then there was a literary magazine. I was fortunate to place a short story there. And uh, then I wrote for the newspaper, which, um, you know, I, looking back, I probably, I probably could have taken on more assignments, but it was just, you know, kind of when you're in school, you, yeah, you, you want so a party much, so much too. time, right. But are you managing it as best you can? Probably. What college was this? Yeah. I went to the University of Scranton in Pennsylvania, which I feel like Scranton has gotten on the map more thanks to the office and Dunder Mifflin and Michael Scott. But <laughs> I don't know if, if you watched that at all. But yeah, yeah. Well, um, you've you've all you've talked about the positive part of writing. What's the toughest part of the writer's journey? Oh, I would say for me at the moment right now, I'm, I'm wrestling with self-discipline. I find that (laughs) unfortunately when, when a sentence gets tough, it's very easy for me to flick away and, you know, scroll through Twitter, scroll through Instagram, uh, send an email to a friend. And so I did, I, I'm ashamed to say it, but I have uh, uploaded or downloaded the Freedom app, which blocks my internet for set periods. And I know I should just be able to disconnect from Wi-Fi and control myself. But uh, I find that, you know, or if I'm doing research, let's say I'm working currently on a plot that is going to take place in a ski resort. And so, of course, the, the second something gets tough, I immediately go to the internet to do a little research on ski resorts or weather patterns and just... Uh, but then so at I'm, that point, you're back on the internet again. Exactly. And, right. Instagram. Instagram. It's, right. it's yeah. a great way to, uh, quote, unquote, waste time. Exactly. <laughs> but, but you're working. You're thinking about your <laughs> your book and your characters, right? I am. I'm trying. But but so right now, I would say that that self-discipline has been, been yeah. the, the biggest challenge just to stay. I focused. think that that's what plagues a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. Stay in the seat. Stay in the room. Exactly. Stay, stay in your focus. Yeah. Stay away from the refrigerator. Yeah. And that one cup of coffee you keep microwaving. Yes. It gives me an excuse to get up and I, you know, I hit 10 seconds. I go sit down. Half an hour later, I'm back re-microwaving it. Yeah. Well, how did you decide to write a memoir, the book Sad Sacked? Oh, thank you for asking. Uh, It sort of came about by accident. And I think it was one of those times, um, you know, I I love Nora Ephron, who says everything is copy. And so I found myself kind of going through a rough time in that my husband was laid off from his job. He had been there 18 years. And that happened in late November or like around that time. And about six weeks later, I was let go from my job. I was a full-time editor for a local news and information site. And Mm. so the two of us, we found ourselves home. And I always, in the memoir, and I often joke, um, you know, there's an expression you marry for... for better or worse, but not for lunch. And then here we were <laughs> looking at each other all day, every day. And it, it was a very cold, unpleasant winter in New Jersey. And unfortunately, or I guess, you know, it's just how it worked out. We had very different ideas about job hunting. I wanted to just, you know, treat it like a numbers game, send out a ton of resumes. And my husband, having been in his position for 18 years, mm-hmm. just wanted to take a break and not really get right back to job hunting. But at the time, you know, and still to this day, we have three children, we have a mortgage, we have bills, all the bills that go hand in hand with with kids and a house. And so 
we were really butting heads. And I guess at one point I thought, I'm going to write this down because what are the odds of the two of us being out of work simultaneously? And um, there were, we were kind of trying to reinvent ourselves. We didn't know, should we stay? We were both media professionals, but should we stay in this field if we were only going to be laid off again? So, you know, my husband would kind of toy with, oh, maybe I should try my hand at graphic design or computer programming. And, you know, we would send out all of these resumes and the rejections were just pouring in along with the bills. And I thought, I'm going to write this down. Also, I sort of felt like if you go out on the internet and you're unemployed, you will find a million advice columns on how to write a resume, how to write a cover letter, but you don't find very many people saying, you know, I have crippling insomnia and I can't stop. I'm stress eating and I don't know how I'm going to pay my bills. I think it's almost like there's a stigma attached to being unemployed or losing your job. People don't really talk about how much it impacts your identity. And because I think too, and I mentioned this in the memoir in the U S as soon as you meet someone, they'll say, what do you do? What's your occupation? Whereas in Europe, people might say, where have you traveled recently? Or that's right. What did you do last weekend? But here we're all about identifying by what we do for a living. And so when you take that away, you really feel unmoored. And so I kind of wanted to write about those feelings more than, you know, what should you put on your resume and how do you beat the algorithms when you're sending it out? So that was sort of the catalyst. And uh, I felt like as I was writing it, it was almost therapeutic to get me through. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Did and you have a lot of back- good reactions to it? I have. You know, it's funny. I think people who have been there can really relate. And I do, I get a lot of emails from people who will say, this happened to my husband and me. We were in the same boat. I know all the stresses that you were going through. And then I think on the flip side, you get people who will say, oh, nothing terrible happened to this lady. You know, she was going to be fine. This wasn't a life or death situation. So, but I think unemployment is something that until you've been in it, you can't really understand. I know And I talk about this too in the memoir. I had had friends whose husbands who'd been laid off. They'd been laid off and you would think, oh, well, sure, they can just get a job. Just send out more resumes. Somebody will call you. But it's not that simple once you are in your 40s or your 50s and you're competing against people who will work for a lot less money, people who don't care about the benefits package, you know, so Uh it's definitely until you're in it, I think it's hard to really relate. But for the people... Who got back out of it first? I did. I took a job, but mm-hmm. unfortunately, as I discussed in the memoir, it was a bit of a bait and switch kind of situation. I thought the job was going to be one thing and it really turned out to be quite another. So mm-hmm. I, within a month, I was back kind of crying at my dining room table, you know, weeping into my laptop. And I was saying, I hope that warranty covers tears in your hard drive because I was, <laughs> I was <laughs> definitely, it was not what I expected, but, um, but I just kind of, struggled through because for the paycheck and the benefits and trying to make the best of it. Yeah. Oh, gee. Well, what made you decide to write a thriller? Your oh. new one called The Perfect Neighborhood. Let me try that again. It's called The Perfect Neighborhood. 
Oh, thank you. Well, I guess that's the genre that I enjoy reading, um, especially at night before I fall asleep. I usually have a book by my bed and I find that anything kind of suspenseful really keeps me going. And I almost look forward to that time where I'm going to, you know, get in my pajamas, have some quiet time and just open this book and dive into this world. And I don't know if you're fans of, I love Sally Hepworth or Leanne Moriarty. So those are some writers that, that I've enjoyed reading. And the plot for this sort of came to me in a dream. I I woke up and I had the beginning and I had the ending. I didn't have the middle, but, uh, and it was funny. I mentioned the idea for it to my husband and his initial reaction was, oh, that'll never work. And then I kind of waited for a different idea to come to me and nothing did. And while I was, let's say, doing laundry or gardening or washing dishes, these characters were kind of fleshing themselves out in my head. So after waiting about six months, I had no other book idea. So I just, I sat down, I opened a Word document and I just started typing everything that I had been thinking for those months. And by the time I looked up, a few hours had passed. I had about 6,000 very messy words, but I thought, okay, if you, if you're committed to this much, just drafting, you've got to, you've got to really start in earnest. So then uh, what I did was I signed up for a workshop and I've done that in the past. And that really kind of, as I say, keeps me honest. So I will write the pages as cleanly as I can. And then um, I'm fortunate that, well, pre-pandemic, it's not far from my home. So we would print out our pages and then read them aloud to each other and get that feedback in real time. And Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed that. And then once the pandemic hit, we were lucky that we were able to still stay connected via Zoom. Yeah. And that's how I wrote it. Well, how did the name come about, The Perfect Neighborhood? Oh, thanks for asking. Well, originally it was titled People in Your Neighborhood uh, because one of the characters toward the end says, um, and I'm paraphrasing, but something like, who's more dangerous, a stranger you meet on the highway or the people in your neighborhood? But I have to say, so my publisher changed it to the perfect neighborhood. And I do think it's it's a little neater on the cover. I think people in your neighborhood might be a, a mouthful. And then I've had other people say, oh, it reminds me of Sesame Street or and, and of course, <laughs> <laughs> you know, Mr. Rogers. To be a thriller. Exactly right. Yeah. So <laughs> we felt like with the perfect neighborhood, you you instantly get the sense that it's an ironic title and that things are far from perfect in exactly. Oakville in the neighborhood mm-hmm. where it's at. Yeah. And how what do kind you- of characters do you have in it? Oh well, I guess the main character who well, there uh, it's told from multiple points of view, but the one of the main characters is a real estate agent, and it's her son who goes missing on his walk home from kindergarten. And she has gone back to work and this is an affluent neighborhood. And so she's one of the few moms in the community who's not there right as the school bell rings to pick up her son and orchestrate these fancy playdates. So of course, when he disappears, she has this terrible guilt that she shouldn't have gone back to work and she should have been there. And then another character is an 18 year old babysitter, Cassidy, who was late the afternoon that the child goes missing. And she sort of has her own complicated backstory. And another character is Allison Langley. And it sort of opens talking about her and her husband. She's a former model and actress. 
and she leaves her husband, who's a former rock star who now gives music lessons in the neighborhood. She leaves him in the middle of the night and nobody Mm. knows before this, they've been sort of this golden couple that everybody admires from afar. And, you know, sort of they're, they admire them, but they're envious of them. And, uh, they, you know, nobody seems to really know them all that well. They're almost like, um, these celebrities in this, in this community. So when she goes missing, the neighbors really focus on that or or not missing, but when she leaves town, that becomes a big focus of gossip until this child disappears. And then people feel, oh, did, did we take our eye off? Should we have been more vigilant? Was there someone lurking in our suburb? But we were so focused on this couple's marriage that we missed it. So it sort of goes from character to character, getting, and you get the backstory on each and also their perceptions of each other. Sounds very interesting. Oh, thank you. I'd love to send you each a copy. Oh, oh I'd love that it. That would be I'd wonderful. Oh, um, also, um, I don't know that this book calls for it, but how do you incorporate humor into tough topics? Oh, that's a great question too. I would say in this, I try to have um, some of the women are are gossipy. So for example, um, they will talk about, they go to one woman's house and uh, another woman says, you know, you won't believe it. She served us wine and red solo cups. And you know what she served as a snack? It was her children's little Fritos that go in their lunch bag. And she then she'll reference another neighbor and she'll say, oh, I thought Betsy was going to DoorDash a charcuterie board, you know, because <laughs> they're so used to having the everything is nice and top of the line. So I try to bring in humor that way. And then um, mm-hmm. I have the neighbor Betsy sort of organizes a meal train for the family whose child has gone missing, but she really does it to kind of get an up close look at how that family is faring in the middle of this, you know, terrible situation that they're going through. And then to other neighbors, she will say, you know, I can't believe Rachel hasn't sent me a thank you net, that thank you <laughs> note yet. And she ha- she'll, she still hasn't returned my La Crusette Dutch oven. And so I try to weave in, you know, those quirks of different characters that you'll meet in that type of neighborhood and bring in a bit of humor that way where possible. How did you do it in Sad Sacked? Oh, you know, a lot of times in Sad Sacked, I felt like certain things just lent themselves to being funny. Um, For example, I I went on a job interview and it was at a major landmark in Manhattan, but I hit a lot of traffic going there. And then, of course, because we were both still unemployed, I didn't want to pay for a parking garage in Manhattan. So circling, circling for a meter, I stuffed the money in the meter. I'm running across town. Uh, You know, I've got I'm, I'm in Birkenstocks, but I I've got heels in a tote bag. So I make my switch in the lobby. They take me all the way up to human resources and the interviewer forgot that I was coming. Oh and no. I, and her name was Liz. And so it was almost like right out of a sitcom, the receptionist, I'm saying, I'm Liz and I'm here to see Liz. And she was saying, no, wait a second. You're also a Liz. And then, um, she's on the phone saying, Liz, Liz is here to see you. And so thankfully the woman was still in the building, but you could tell they had no idea that I was scheduled to come. And the whole time I'm thinking I just paid 
for tolls and gas. And there's a meter ticking, you know, several blocks away. I got to get back there. So I tried. And so I said, you know, when I got back to the car, I really felt like just beating my heels off the steering wheel in frustration. But when you're in Manhattan, that no one would even bat an eye, you know, if something that passersby would just keep going because that that's nothing unheard of in in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so what advice would you give to someone who wants to be an author? I would say definitely read as much as you can, read across genres, figure out um, what styles you like. And um, I guess what I think everyone has an advantage is that we all have unique voices. So I remember one of the first classes I took when I was working on my memoir, it was taught by a literary agent. And she was saying, you know, you look at Frank McCourt with Angela's Ashes and, you know, most people would say, oh, do we really need another story about a sad childhood set in Ireland? But when it's Frank McCourt's voice, of course we do. And so she was saying, you know, everyone brings their own voice to their work. So don't ever be discouraged that your story might be similar to someone else's, because of course, when you write it, it's going to be completely, it's going to turn out completely different. Um, So I would say just write. And I would say, take a class, find a group that you find encouraging that you can share your work with. I think too, one issue that I have when you, when you asked about sort of the pitfalls of writing is it's very hard to see your own blind spots. And so that's where if you're in a workshop or a critique group, people can say, well, what about this? Or I didn't understand this. Or, you know, even things that seem obvious that we might overlook, like what time of day is this happening? Where is this set exactly? Questions that, you know, your readers might have that you, because it's all in your head, you know it so well, but it's it's so important to get that kind of feedback as you go, or at least it, it has been very, very helpful for me. And I would say just stick with it. It, it can be discouraging, but, um, you know, I, I try, even though I, I'm lacking self-discipline at the moment, I try to pencil into a calendar where I'll, I hope to be, let's say complete (laughs) chapter one by this date. And I don't always stick to it, but I try to set those sort of goal posts and, and write toward them as best I can. And I would also say, this is something I'm doing at the moment. And I did with the perfect neighborhood as well is if, if you feel stuck, write the scene that you're most excited about. And so I do that and then I'll kind of go back and fill in. Or mm-hmm. I also, you know, I will say like future Liz doesn't always love when I do this, but instead of stopping, I'll put in parentheses, you know, fix this later or describe this weather or describe this, go back. And so I keep going, know it, trusting myself that I'm going to make it better when I come back to revise. That's really good advice. All of it. It's oh, really, really very good. <laughs> positive. It's it's hard one, I have to say. (laughs) Yeah, but how do you cope with rejection then? Oh, that's hard too. You know, I think one thing I try to tell myself is that everybody has different taste and that is great because we wouldn't all want to read the same thing. So I think about sometimes I'll look at books that have been bestsellers and they might be things that I haven't been able to finish. And I think if I were a literary agent and that crossed my desk, I would have missed out on a great bestseller just because it wasn't something that would have appealed to me. And I actually, there's a book that I recommended to my cousin and my neighbor, and it's one that I loved. And both of them said, yeah, I didn't like that at all. And so 
Yeah. I guess when I get a rejection, I try to think, you know what, I, that's just not the right home for it, or that's not the right, per- I haven't found the right audience yet. So, but I will say this, if I get feedback that's actionable, that I think, oh, that's a really good point, then I will go back and rewrite it and try to incorporate that feedback. Yeah, but- because some of the rejection could just come from your little support group. Exactly. Your little, yeah, could, right. could reject it. And then it, it's, it's advisable to just go back and redo it, right? Exactly. Uh, Mary, Mary and I have a book group and I'm in two book groups and oh, I can great. tell you that we can be reading the most wonderful book and we will have several people that can't stand it. Right. Exactly. Several people that think it's the best book they've read. So Absolutely. that, yeah, there's room for a lot of different taste. Exactly. And that's what I try to tell myself. And I try to say to other people, I have a friend and she writes wonderful essays, but if she sends it out and gets one rejection, she doesn't want to try again. And I'll say, no, please, you have to, you have to keep going. Just as soon as one rejection comes in, think of it as a revolving door, just send it back out. You just haven't found the right person yet. Unless, like I say, if you get something and as you see, that's, that's good advice that would make essay or story stronger, then I would say definitely rework it before you send it back. Well, what do you tell yourself? You sound like such a positive person (laughs) and and your friend is probably has an attitude that a lot of people have. So what do you do? Uh, You know, I try to take it in stride. And if there's no actionable feedback, I just try to send it back out into the universe and hope, hope for the best. I will say with my memoir, Sad Sacked, it was rejected a number of times. And, you know, for all different reasons, people would say, um, you are not a celebrity. You don't have a platform. You're not a real housewife. Nobody's going to care about this. Then I guess I was trying to sell it in about 2018. And people would say the economy is really good. Nobody wants to hear about unemployment. And I say, if anyone then had bought it, and it could have come out in 2020 when the pandemic <laughs> was happening. It would have been timed perfectly with everyone being laid off. Other people would say, um, I think, you know, this is a great story. I enjoyed it, but it, couldn't it be an essay? And so that was really oh. hard really hard to oh. hear, right? When when you've written 90,000 words on a subject and, it, and it's your oh. life. It's not just, I know. So, you know, that, that was very hard to hear, but... And it did sit in my hard drive for a very long time. And then a friend of mine was, uh, she had written a thriller and she had an agent. And she said to me, have you tried Audible's pitch portal? You can submit without an agent. And so I did. And within one month, an editor reached out and said, I'm really interested. Um, If we made you an offer, would would you sell it to us? And so right there, I feel like that was proof of I just needed to find my person, someone without saying too much, she and her husband had been in media and they always, they lived with that threat of being laid off, kind of hanging over their heads. So she, it was funny. She said, you know, when I was reading this, I had to skip to the end to see if you got back on your feet because I just couldn't take the suspense of it because she had lived it. And so I think that was, that was what I needed was somebody who got that story. But uh, if I, if I hadn't found her, it would probably still just be living in my iCloud. <laughs> well, the universe um, stepped in. So exactly. you 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 touched on this a lot, but how do you carve out time for writing when you have a full-time job? 
Right. Well, you know, I will say this, I was writing at night a lot or I would wake up early and I'm, I'm very fortunate. My husband is really supportive. I guess, you know, I, I joke that for years I would say to him, I'm going to write a novel. And then I think he never said like, okay, do it or stop talking about it. But I kind of, once I said, you know, I'm really going to do this, I, instead of um, watching Netflix series or, um, you know, doing other things at night, I would, I would take two hours and try to write or uh, for a while there, I was getting up around 5.30 or 6 and, you know, making a cup of coffee and just trying to get some quiet time before my kids woke up. But now I did, I was laid off again, which it's, I always say much easier after you've been through it a few times. I had a full-time job up until February and then I was let go. And uh, so now I've just been freelancing, which makes it a lot easier to carve out time to write. Yeah. But, oh, Yeah. And we know your book. We know about your book, Sad Sacked, about it being dur during unemployment, and that it's a memoir. So, what advice would you offer to someone who is unemployed and struggling to help them stay motivated while they're job hunting? I would say, I, I, you know, don't don't be afraid to really admit how tough it is. I would say be gentle with yourself because it it is a really hard thing. When people reach out to me who have been laid off, one of the first things they say is, "I'm I'm shocked," and um, you know, your confidence takes a hit, your self esteem, um, your dignity, especially in today's workforce. A lot of times you're not given a reason. You're just dismissed and you're gone that day. You don't have a chance to say goodbye to your colleagues. You know, it's oh. really, it's really rough. So I, what I would say is try to do, you know, job hunt for part of the day, but then make time for things you enjoy, whether that's exercise, um, spending time with a pet, volunteering, if you can join um, like a networking support group where you can meet other people who are kind of going through it too, I think it, it helps to talk about. And I also, I would say that layoffs and certainly large scale layoffs have become so much more commonplace uh, that we're talking about them so much more because when my husband and I were like, oh, it was 2013, 2014. And it was, we went to a dinner party and it was during the winter, we hadn't really seen anybody. And so of course people are like, how's work? And, you know, I'll say, well, Rich was laid off. I was laid off. And you could almost feel them back away. Like we were yeah. courageous, like, oh no. And, um, and but then yeah. people kind of come up to you later and almost whisper, you know, my husband was let go two years ago and I know how hard that is, but mm. now I feel like people are talking about it more, but it really, it helps for somebody to say, I went through it or, you know, pass me your resume. That's what I really appreciated the people, you know, some people would just say like, oh, that's really rough. But other people would say, send me your resume. Let me see who I know in my network. So I think, you know, staying in touch with people, whether it's um, joining a, a support group, I know plenty of libraries or community centers offer programs like that. And finding people who, who are kind of in the same boat and can, you can kind of help each other and encourage each other. Uh, I, I will, I guess sometimes I'll write articles for career sites and they will say, you know, almost find a buddy where you'll say, okay, today I'm going to send out five resumes or I'm going to look for five different openings and, and just get it done. And then I'll go for a walk or, you know, maybe then I'll treat myself to a cup of coffee or, or something that you enjoy as a reward to kind of stay motivated. That's great advice. Just terrific. 
So as an author, what are some of the tools that have helped you? Oh, that's a great question. My favorite thing that I recommend to everyone is called Natural Readers. It's uh, a website where you can put in your text and it will read it back to you. And that has helped me catch, because I think your eye adjusts. And I have to, I'll give my oldest son credit for introducing me to this. When he was writing his college essays, he had his essay complete. And so my husband and I just wanted to proofread it. And it was really funny. He connected his laptop to our television and right away, there was a typo in the first sentence oh. that none of us were catching. Let's say it was the word of or if. It ended one line with the word of or if, and the next line started with of or if. So he had the words back to back, but our, your eye just adjusts to it. But when the natural readers read it out loud, it said like, of, of, in this robot voice. And we all went, we didn't even notice that. And so I use it to catch words I'm overusing. And, and that's really eye-opening. You'll, you'll hear the word listen or, or whatever, or just, or really all of those kind of weasel words that if you can right. them out, makes it really sound. already <laughs> because, exactly. because you Suddenly. think you're trying to write real natural dialogue the way people talk and people do repeat a lot, but it doesn't read very well. Exactly. And that's what I was going to say too. It really helps with dialogue on what sounds natural or even I've tried to, you realize how many times you might use said, which people will say that said is an invisible word that you just glance over. But if you can take it out and give the person a gesture or an action that they're doing and you still know who said it, but now you're kind of giving them something to do other than just so and so. Said. Yeah, exactly. So mm-hmm. that natural readers is probably my favorite. I think Grammarly is another good tool, but I would say sometimes you have to watch because it's it's not a perfect science, I would say. <laughs> sometimes um, Grammarly and I get locked in comma battles where I, I, I'll have to Google, is that really, are they really right about that comma? But um that's been a good tool. And then... Um, what about spell check? Yes, that's great too. I definitely, <laughs> I rely very heavily on that. Yeah, that's, that's great. That is good. And Liz, what would you like our listeners to have as a takeaway today? Oh, well, I would say if you're a writer, just, you know, keep going. Don't Don't let that rejection or... You know, thinking, I think it's very hard now with social media, you see everyone sharing their good news out there a lot, whether it's Mm -hmm. getting an agent or getting a book deal. And it's very hard to measure yourself against that and think, why isn't it happening for me? Um, You know, my first book wasn't published until I guess a couple of weeks before my 50th birthday. And, and yet I had wanted to be a writer my entire life. So I would say just keep going and believe in yourself and, um, and do the work. I think and that's something I have to tell myself now. <laughs> do the work. <laughs> Stay off the internet and just do the work. Just oh, do the yeah. writing. That's fantastic. Writing. Yeah, that's, it's hard to do. <laughs> Easy to say, hard to do. But thank you so much, Liz. Our guest today. Well, our guest today on Late Boomers has been Liz Alterman, author of the young adult book, I'll Be Waiting, the guide to finding your way while unemployed called Sad Sacked, and her thriller novel, The Perfect Neighborhood. You can find her at lizalterman.com, where you can see an overview of her work and a way to contact her. 
Thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with our listeners today and with us. Thanks oh, again. Thank you, Mary and Kathy. It's been such a pleasure. Yes, a pleasure is ours. And we want to remember our listeners to follow us on Instagram at I am Kathy Worthington and at I am Mary Elkins and at Late Boomers. Write to us on our website, lateboomers.biz, B-I-Z, and let us know if we are inspiring you and entertaining you. We'd love to hear from you, and we hope you're living your best lives and enjoying exploring new topics with us. Thanks again, Liz. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Late Boomers the podcast that is your guide to creating a third act with style, power, and impact. Please visit our website and get in touch with us at lateboomers.biz. If you would like to listen to or download other episodes of Late Boomers, go to ewnpodcastnetwork.com. This podcast is also available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and most other major podcast sites. We hope you make use of the wisdom you've gained here and that you enjoy a successful third act with your own style, power, and impact.